0: This is a recording made in the Chapel of the Open Book and we are starting this evening a new series, the Book of Daniel followed by the Book of the Revelation. This is number one of this new series. It is our custom at these meetings to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening, will you join with us and read together the 2nd of Chronicles chapter 36. We are commencing with this study, confessedly a difficult subject, but it forms a part of the Word of God which has been written for our learning, and it particularly has a bearing upon Gentile times, and therefore we dare not pass it by. (coughs) It's a very difficult thing to sum up a book like the Scriptures, but (coughs) I think we can say with some measure of confidence that the whole Bible is related to one of two mysteries. Either the mystery of godliness, which focuses upon Christ, or the mystery of iniquity, which focuses upon the Antichrist. The whole Bible seems to revolve round the history of two cities, either the city of Jerusalem or the city of Babylon. When one is in the ascendancy, the other is debased. We meet the, the Babel in the book of Genesis, we meet Melchizedek who was the king priest of Salem in Genesis, and we meet the two cities in the book of the Revelation. Now these things form the backbone of all prophecy. While the people of Israel are in any measure in favor, one aspect of God's truth will be unfolding itself. But when the people of Israel become what is called low army, not my people, whether it be for 70 years, or whether it be for 70 times 7 years, or whether it be for nearly 2,000 years as it seems to be now, another aspect of prophecy comes into view. That which has to do with the restoration of the people of Israel is more or less left on the one side, and prophecies which have to do with Gentile dominion, And with the calling of the church, they come into view. When we consider the teaching of the Apostle Paul in his epistles, in the early epistles, he is still walking with the prophecies that have Israel in view. Uh, We discover that he takes you right into the period governed by the book of the Revelation. You compare 2 Thessalonians 2 with Revelation chapter 13, you will find that they are marching together. But when you come to the prison ministry of the Apostle Paul, with Israel scattered, with their city destroyed and their temple burnt, you see the parallel that we've just read in 2 Corinthians, then it's the mystery element that comes in into prophecy. So in the book uh, Gospel according to Matthew, the parables are not the parables of the kingdom, the parables are the parables of the mysteries or secrets of the kingdom. And it's one of the extraordinary features that the only part of the Bible where the word secret or mystery enters is the prophecy of Daniel. And you'll see how that uh, lines up with the general line of teaching. Now we have read together 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's very necessary that we should have some idea of the movement that took place among these kings before the end came. I know it's rather dry and there's no merit in being able to rattle off all the names of the kings of Israel and Judah. Uh, Most of us are quite satisfied in our own history to know something about a man who let the cakes burn in 1066, William the Conqueror. We don't seem to be much uh, at a loss over that. But when we read this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is in rather a favourable light. He puts up a king and that king does evil in the sight of God and he puts him down and he puts another one. And when they mocked the messengers of God, when they turned a deaf ear to the word of God, that Nebuchadnezzar was sent by God. He didn't go on his own. He went, he went as a messenger of God. He deposed those kings. He took away the holy things from the temple. And for 70 years, Israel were captive. And for that part of the period, they were in the condition of being low army, not my people. We shall be obliged, therefore, and necessary, to um, read some of these Old Testament passages that deal with the history of the people of Israel to keep pace with the movement that we find in both book of Daniel and the Revelation. There's no need to apologise for these things. This is a matter just of explanation. Well, now we'll turn to the book of Daniel and... Uh, Rather strangely, if you're looking in the, or as one thing I ought to have said, and I can say it here. If you're looking into the Hebrew Bible, you discover that Daniel is not put among the prophets. He's put among the rest of the Bible, which is covered by the word, either the writings or the Psalms. That is to say, the canon of Old Testament Scripture is divided the law, five books, the prophets, And then all the other writings, whether it be Job or Ecclesiastes or the Song of Solomon or Daniel, he's not put in the prophets. One of the reasons is this, that he so stressed the Gentiles that the Jewish feeling was that it wasn't quite right for a, a, a prophet to give such a place to the Gentile. They hesitated too about Jonah because he did the same thing. And it's rather remarkable that in the Gospel according to Matthew our Saviour picks out two men and says Daniel the prophet and Jonah the prophet. So that prejudice of course has been broken. But here we have the book of Daniel. I have referred to this book before as though Daniel were the Paul of the Old Testament. In what way? Well, he was a captive. Paul became a captive. And when he was a prisoner, that is to say, when Daniel was a prisoner, he used for the first time the word, the secrets, which have to do with Gentile dominion. And when Paul became the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles, it was to reveal not that we were going to be like Nebuchadnezzar and rule over the earth, but that the Gentile had a place in the scheme of things which took effect when the people of Israel themselves were captives and blind to their destiny. The same thing obtains in the Gospel according to Matthew. Prophecy is being fulfilled in Matthew 1, Matthew 2, Matthew 3, but by the time you get to Matthew 11, he could do no more mighty works. And Matthew 13 starts the mysteries of the Kingdom of Heaven, not the Kingdom of Heaven itself, the secret element and an enemy has done this, is a very important feature in that series. Well now, I don't want to go too intimately into defending this book, but it has been very seriously attacked. So, just a word or two. I think most of us have reached this position, that whatever was the Bible of our Saviour is ours. They may say, well, it's prejudiced. So I'm glad to be prejudiced. So this is my attitude. I trust it's yours. I could not possibly bring myself to commit my eternal salvation to someone who was deceived as to whether this man or the other man ever wrote a book that's in the Bible. If he didn't know that, I should hesitate to trust him. I hope you would. But he says to me through this book, the servant is not above his Lord. And I believe that is our attitude. Show me what is the Bible of Christ, and that will be mine. Whether I can meet all the objections of higher criticism or whatnot, what does that matter? You never satisfy these people, whatever you do. But at least we shall have a good conscience. Now our Saviour quoted Daniel by name. In Matthew 24, he says, "When When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, well that was endorsing it and when he stood on his trial for his very life and they said to him tell us whether thou be the Christ or not he said hereafter you shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven quoted Daniel do you need any more friends? I hope not for you won't get it but there's one other feature which is a positive one that I think you ought to realise will you look at Daniel the second chapter verse 4 then spoke the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. Well, that's just as much as to say, then spoke the Chaldeans to the king in Chaldee. I mean, you look at the Times, Telegraph, or whatever paper you read, when it said, um, uh, Mr. MacKilliam stood up and spoke in English. Well, you say, well, what else would he speak? Now, it doesn't mean that at all. The words in Syriac are standing over a section of Daniel where the language changes. The first chapter and the first three verses are all in Hebrew. And then from that verse right through to the end of chapter 7 it's in Syriac. It's one of the few books where the the language is dual. Most of the Bible in the Old Testament is in Hebrew. But here we have a book where it starts with Hebrew it finishes with Hebrew, but in the middle of it, the bulk of it, which has to do with these unfolding of prophecies, to do with the Gentiles, it's a Gentile language. Well now, you, you see, I'd like you to look at two passages now. 2 Kings 18, 26. 2 Kings 18.26 Now this has to do with the coming of Sennacherib and the Rabshaker blasphemy against God. He comes to the walls of Jerusalem and he begins to pour out his blasphemies and what, what Sennacherib is going to do with his people. And it says in verse 25, Am I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then said Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Josh, Joach, unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, to thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and talk not with us in the Jews' language in the ears of the people that are on the wall. So in those days, they understood Hebrew. Only the leaders understood Syriac. So the book of Daniel wouldn't be so much good to them because half of it they wouldn't be able to read. Well now will you turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. We have Ezra and Nehemiah linked together but Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 8 And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, there's not only one man reading the book, but he's got a whole crowd with him. Also Jeshua, and Barney and Sherebiah, and Jabin, and Aqab, and Shabbatai, and Hodijah. I hope that all answer their names the way I'm pronouncing it, Mesiar, and Kelaita, and Azariah, and Jehoshaphat, Hanan, and Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in the place. So, they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading, and from that time, arose the comments on the Bible that were written in uh, Aramaic. These people had been born in captivity, and they grew up and spoke the language of their captors. So on that side, in Kings, they spoke Hebrew and didn't understand Syriac. In this side, in Nehemiah, they spoke Syriac and didn't understand Hebrew. Well, where will you put the book of Daniel? Well, if you've got any sense, you'll put it in between, won't you, say? There's the period when they spoke both. Now, that's the only place that the book of Daniel will fit without squeezing it, altering it. But you see, the critic came along, and he said, oh, no, these prophecies are too good to be true. They were evidently written after the event took place, and it's a pious fraud. You see? So I think that the very fact of language being introduced like that is one of the evidences that this was just exactly at the right time. Before Hebrew was completely lost, before the Syriac was completely dominant, it was a book that could be written in the two tongues and hoped to be understood. We'll, we'll leave that. The next thing is this. i touched upon Sennacherib in the book of Kings. When you read the prophecy of Isaiah, you say to me, here it goes again, we're supposed to have the book of Daniel. We've had two chronicles, we've had Jeremiah, we've had, yes, friends. When you read the prophecy of Isaiah, you go solidly through prophecy up to the end of chapter 35. Then chapter 40 picks it up again, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. But in between 35 and 40 is a bit of history that you can read in the books of Kings. Why does why does his, uh, Isaiah hold up prophecy to put a bit of history in it that they all knew? Nobody could have lived in those days who didn't know the name Sennacherib and the terror that was introduced by that man. If you haven't got any idea at all what it would be like to live in the days of Sennacherib, turn into the British Museum one day and look at the pictures the man had on his wall. There he is sitting on a throne outside Lachish. And there's a row of people stuck upon spikes through their abdomen. There's a man being quietly skinned alive in his presence. That's the man that brought terror with him as he came. Now why? Do you want to know why? Isaiah says, look, I'm telling you of a greater than Sennacherib that's yet coming. With greater terror over the earth than ever he spread. But I'm telling you that just as surely God put a hook in his nose and took him back, and defeated his plans, so he will do again. Isn't it right, that if God is making the most wonderful prophecies of deliverance, he should stoop a little bit to us and say, well I've done it before, I'll do it again. We find the same thing happening, when you begin to look at the plagues that fall on Egypt, and then you go to the book of the Revelation, you see them there, you see, what he has done once, he can do again. So, Just as we have Isaiah with its two great wings, the first 35 chapters and then 40 to 66 the other side and the bit of history in the middle, so Daniel, he doesn't write it with the same pattern, but he writes it with the same idea that he gives you first of all things that have already happened, bits of history, and then he follows it with prophecy which is yet to come. And it's so written that as you go through it, you find it echoing all the way through. Now, I commend to you this structure. I don't know that it occurs in any other book except those which are published by the Berean Forward movement, but that's not because I've invented it. It's only because, like Christopher Columbus, he didn't invent America, he just discovered it. It's there all the time. So, would you like just to look at this outline before we go further? The whole of the book of Daniel. In the first two chapters... We have the captive brought into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He interprets a dream and it's to do with Gentile dominion. Nebuchadnezzar is succeeded by the Medes and Persians, the Medes and Persians by Greece and so on. And we are told in the first verses, the Lord gave, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar took. Now come down to the second part, chapter 7. "There again a dream. it's a dream. This time, not a dream by Nebuchadnezzar, but by Daniel. And this time it's not Nebuchadnezzar being given dominion, it's the Son of God, or the Son of Man. And to him was given dominion. Given to him. The same as the word gave in the first chapter. The point is that just as God has complete sovereignty with regard to putting Nebuchadnezzar on the throne, so when that day comes, Nothing on heaven, nothing on earth or in heaven could withstand the accession of his beloved son. Let's take heart over that fact, friends. Let we come back again. You remember the story of the burning fiery furnace. And I suppose there's nobody listening to me but what knows that the names of those men were Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego. But there's a possibility that not every one of us could stand up and give you what their true name was. Because their true name was Jewish names have had the names of the God of Israel in them. So when they became captives, Nebuchadnezzar said here, get rid of the name Jehovah, and get rid of the name of him, and put Nebo and all these others in. Belty, you see, Belshazzar. Daniel was called uh, Belshazzar. Uh, Belshazzar, rather, and the emphasis in destroying the very presence of the name of God. Well, those men were in a fiery furnace. And then you remember Nebuchadnezzar's exclamation Did we not throw three men into that fire? I see a fourth, like unto the Son of God. And when we come down this story, we find that there was a fiery stream, a burning flame. But if the Son of God was not there, that meant utter destruction. Oh yes, now. And then it says, peoples and nations and languages shall serve him, the Lord. And here it says the same words, people, nations, and languages shall serve him, one like the Son of Man. One like the Son of God. So the book of Daniel says the same one who is called the Son of God is the Son of Man. Let me come back again. Chapter 4 is a most extraordinarily difficult chapter. It deals with a period of madness that seized upon Nebuchadnezzar made him sort of act and think as though he were just a beast of the field. Till seven times passed over him. And when we run our eye down to the same letter, chapter 9, we have 70 times seven where we have restoration. There we have seven times of madness. Then, once again, in chapter 5, there's a writing on the wall, Midi, Midi Tikul Euphasi. What does it mean? The handwriting on the wall. Well, it's explained. I've, I've given you the word "kitab," which means writing. When you run your eye down to the same letter, chapter 10 and 11, again, there is writing. This time it's the scripture of truth. Writing. That is explained. But in both cases, the same word is used. Then we come back again. The hand on the wall Belshazzar's doom. Down here we have a hand stretched out for in strengthening. We go back again on the story and we find that at that period Darius the Mede, not Nebuchadnezzar, is the king. And we go back to that story and Darius the Mede is the king, not Nebuchadnezzar. And then we have in chapter 6 a den of lions. And down here we have the whole of the Gentile dominion likened to a lot of savage beasts leopard, bear, lion, and an indescribable monster. Up here we have a den of lions sealed. I've given you the Hebrew word at the side. Down here we have seal up the prophecy till the time of the end. Same word. Did you tell me all those are just accidents? They seem to work together so truly as though God intended they should march together. And then we have the last word. He delivered. And here we have the last word. His people shall be delivered, every one that is written in the book. Well, that's the testimony of Daniel. History past, centuries ago, has fulfilled many of the statements there. Shall we not then say, and history in the future, when God's good time comes, will show that every item that is written there will be fulfilled. So let's be thankful that he hasn't merely said, can't you trust me? Can't you believe me? He has stooped to give us evidences that he is indeed trustworthy. Well, now we must go a little bit nearer to the story. Daniel, the first chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you see, we were reading about Jehoiakim, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. Then we read in the second verse, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. You will remember that in an earlier day, when the ark was taken into the temple of the Philistines, into the house of their God, when they went into the holy place the next morning, there was Dagon stretched out on his face on the floor. And then they were alarmed, because they realised God had intervened. But when Nebuchadnezzar took these holy vessels into his idolatrous holy place, nothing happened. You see, for the time being, Israel went out of favour. Again, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, this is a date which is most important. For here begins the time of the Gentiles. Whether we can pinpoint the exact date and say it's BC, so and so, doesn't matter. I think chronology and history is so muddled up that nobody could go into a court of law today and take an oath that this was 1959. It's somewhere near about it. But it doesn't matter. But when that third year occurred, when this was delivered to Nebuchadnezzar, the times of the Gentiles began. And Jerusalem was enslaved and Babylon was in the ascendancy. Now, we are still living in the times of the Gentiles when we speak externally. The times of the Gentiles have nothing to do with the dispensation of the mystery. That's a secret within a circle. But we are still living in times when the key city has got a barbed wire running through the middle of it and two different peoples occupy it and they're at daggers drawn. We may have said what a wonderful event has taken place. The people of Israel have gone back to their own land. They speak of themselves as, as Israeli. You remember the reason being? They're not merely saying that we are Israel, but this is the land of Israel, and this is the nation of. The eye on the end is an, as a possessive word. But it's only half-hearted, friends. They have not yet looked upon him whom they pierced. That must take place. Movements are going on, but that must take place. And Jerusalem is yet to be invested by armies, and yet needs deliverance. But we're getting near the time, friends. Not one of us, but what can see in the Near East, the gathering of the nations reshaping themselves, reforming almost as they were 2,000 years ago, when this present period closes the nations of the earth will be almost in the same position and that part of the purpose of God, so long hidden, so long laid aside, will be resumed. Now, will you turn with me to Jeremiah 25? I'd like you to feel this that you're in sympathy with Daniel because Daniel, a prophet himself, who wrote by inspiration of God, we are told in the ninth chapter that he was reading the prophet Jeremiah. Well, if an inspired prophet felt it was useful to read Jeremiah, I suppose we will, shall we? Jeremiah 25. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Oh, is a mistake. Oh, dear, dear, dear. It says in Daniel, it was the third year. And here it says the fourth. As though it doesn't take any time to travel from one part of the world to the other. Oh, you see people fasten on this and say, he's a mistake. No. It's truth. Because if he'd said it was in the third year, people would have found fault and said, well, you haven't allowed any time to go. And then you will discover on top of that, that he turned aside, if you look at 40, uh, if you look at Jeremiah 46, He turned aside to fight a battle on the way. And if that doesn't take a little time, what does? Jeremiah 46. Uh, Verse, just let me see. 1 and 2. The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Gentiles. Against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, smote in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. He was on his way. And at the banks of the Euphrates, he was met by Egypt. So he had to deal with him first and then go on. And I've actually had pointed out to me in the British Museum the little flint arrowheads, or bronze arrowheads, that were found on the very battleground of the Battle of Carchemish, right back in those days. Oh, that's all right. Now we come back to Jeremiah 25. Well, somebody may be saying, uh, what is the spelling of this man's name? Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadrezzar? Well, inasmuch as Nebuchadnezzar wrote his name in um, what they call cuneiform, you know, like that, may have looked like something else. But, uh, which is the answer? The letter in is like that in the Hebrew, and the letter R is like that, you see. i better say that all over again for our friends who are not here. I've drawn on the blackboard the Hebrew letter N and the Hebrew letter R, and they are both the same shape, but one is a little shorter than the other. And if you've written a book the size of the Bible with a pen, uh, well, there's a possibility you would make a slip too sometimes. So it's the same man, he'll answer to the name whether you call him Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar, because he wouldn't pronounce it like that either way. Alright, we are getting on, aren't we? The which Jeremiah the prophet spake unto all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Amon, king of Judah, even unto this day, that is the three-and-twentieth year, The word of the Lord hath come unto me and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye have not hearkened. Did you notice in Chronicles that it spoke about the Lord rising up betimes, as though God himself got up early in order to give them a witness. Here Jeremiah says, I rose up early to give you a witness, and ye would not hearken. All these people brought it upon themselves by their attitude to the word of God. And the Lord hath sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. But ye have not hearkened, nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Turn ye again now, everyone, from his evil way, and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord hath given unto you, and to your fathers for ever and ever. And go not after other gods to serve them, and to worship them, and provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands, and I will do you no hurt. Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that ye might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own heart. Now we come to the bit that bears upon Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, king of Babylon, he says, is my servant. It does say in the scriptures that sometimes Babylon or Assyria would have to be punished for what they did because they were only serving their own ends. But God says they were serving mine. Oh yes, he hadn't given up sovereignty. So it's Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing at a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstone, and the light of the candle. What desolation that indicates. And this whole land shall be a desolation, and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for a very long time? No, for seventy years, specific Seventy years. And it shall come to pass, when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon. And that nation saith the Lord for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans will make it perpetual desolations. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah hath prophesied against all the nations, and so on. Well, there it is, written by Jeremiah before the time came, How long it would last when it did start? That's prophecy, friends. Because suppose Nebuchadnezzar had made up his mind, he wouldn't go. Well, then nothing could have happened, could it? Well, he did go. And suppose he made up his mind, he'd never give up again. Well, a poor man had no opportunity because he died and his son and his grandson was on the throne at the end of the 70 years. And he saw the writing on the wall. Oh, yes. We are dealing with God, friends. And although he gives us freedom of choice and respects our own personal individuality, his purposes will ripen fast. Oh yes. He doesn't allow it to rest upon you or me or anybody, ultimately. And so we've got to recognise that. So we have 70 years. I think we ought to go back again, although we read the uh, two chronicles, I think we ought to go back again to that 36th chapter just for a point. 2 Chronicles 36. If anybody says, well, we're reading the same part twice over. Here we have it. And I'd like you to point out that this is the last page of the Old Testament. Of course, Malachi is the last page of our Bible, the Old Testament. But if you took from the shelves over there the Hebrew Bible and you pretended you were reading the prophet Malachi, you'd have an awful time of it because you'd be reading the Second Chronicles. You see, the last book in the Bible starts with the word Adam. Adam. And then it goes on, Seth, Enoch, and so on, right the way through and ends up with this 36th chapter. The books of Chronicles sum up the whole Bible from the day of creation right to the time of this end. Well now in this 36th chapter in verses 5 and 7 he says I will bring against him Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon against him came Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and bound him in fetters and carried him and Nebuchadnezzar also carried him the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. So what was prophesied in Jeremiah is here recorded as history. And again in verse 13, and he also rebelled against the king Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. So he was a covenant breaker, this king. He took an oath to Nebuchadnezzar that he would act in certain ways, he broke it. So in any, every way they seemed to forfeit God's care for the time being. Well then, in this um, chapter... You read these words. Um, Wrath of the Lord rose against these people, I'm reading verse 16, till there was no remedy. No remedy. Surely it's not accident. If I were reading the Bible as it was first written, I read on the last page of the old book, no remedy. I turn the page, and it says, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And the word save and the word healing are very often the same word in the New Testament. No remedy. God's remedy. The one showing the utter failure of man under the best conditions, and then God at the fullness of time, sending his Son. Now again, Jeremiah 22. I feel we ought to see these features because if I simply say, you read through Jeremiah and find them, well, you say there's a lot of chapters in Jeremiah and it's very difficult, but this is our opportunity, isn't it? Jeremiah 22 verses 24 to 30. As I live, saith the Lord, though Coniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. Coniah, who's he? Well, you'll discover that his real name was Jeconiah. Well, what's happened then? God has removed J-E away from that man's name. Just as Nebuchadnezzar altered the name of Daniel and the others and gave the heathen names to them, So God says to this man, you're not worthy to have the name Jeconiah, J-E. Call him Coniah. Remove the holy name of God from his name. He's not worthy. And I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And I will cast thee out, and thy mother that bear thee, into another country, where ye were not born, and there shall ye die. And to the land whereunto thou desire to return, thither shall they not return. Is this man Coniah a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein there is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he of his seed, and are cast out into a land which they know not? All earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David, and ruling any more in Judah. So although this man had sons, he's written childless, for not one of them would be an heir to the throne. Well that was what was happening to this people. They had been given promises, They were in covenant relationship with God. He had preserved them. He had watched over them. He had performed mighty miracles. He had brought them out of bondage. He had taken them to himself into the land. He had set up ultimately David to be their king. And all the gracious things that had been done, they turned like this. Well, I suppose most of us would say, well, I suppose that's the end of the story. But then, of course, we don't understand the heart of God, do we? When we come to the epistle to the Romans, chapter 11, it says this very people are, at this very moment, enemies because of the gospel, but they are beloved. Enemies, and yet beloved. Oh yes, two sides. Enemies because of the gospel, but beloved because of the Father. And the gifts and calling of God are without a change of mind, and so all Israel shall be saved. But the same Romans 11 says, that their falling aside has only opened the door of grace for the Gentile to come in. And so, out of this all abject decline, God has opened a door for Gentiles to come in. Whether the Gentiles are going to profit, whether they're going to please God is for them to decide in a measure. But that's what happens. But in the spiritual sense, it's happened to us that Israel forfeited their place and for the time being have been desolate, blind and scattered, but it's says, if the fall of them be the bringing of the Gentiles into life, what will be the restoring of them but life from the dead. And so we've got to realise that God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. He is dealing with them in discipline and it's been terrific. But you can see the aggravation that they caused and the way in which they acted. I think perhaps In closing, we'll turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 21. Here again, you see, we have another prophet, and a very difficult one at that, who has something to say that bears upon this book of Daniel. Ezekiel 21, verse 25. And thou profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come, when iniquity shall have an end, thus saith the Lord God. Remove the diadem. Take off the crown. This should not be the same. That's a rather difficult piece to translate. Strictly speaking, the Hebrew words read, this shall not be this. Will you say how clear that is? No, you see, he's dealing with a Hebrew king and a Gentile king he says I'm going to remove that and in its place is coming a Gentile dominion but it won't be the real thing this should not be that oh no that is going to remain in the eye of God unaltered and one day this people are going to be a kingdom of priests and the saviour is going to sit upon the throne of David oh yes but this is a temporary measure lasting a long time so far as we're concerned but this should not be this or the same Exalt him that is low. Abase him that is high. You remember in the other passage we read just now, it says earth, earth, earth. Sometimes you read a double name in the Bible. Abraham, Abraham. or oh, it's a critical moment. Soul, soul, It's a critical moment. But when you get it three times, it's a challenge to you to stop and think. Earth, earth, earth. Here it is. I will overturn, overturn, overturn. Now, some people have gone out of their way to reckon up how long each overturning was, and it amounts up to so many years. Now, I think that's, that's silly. It doesn't mean that. But it's this desperate em- emphasis upon it. In the prophet Isaiah, they said, holy, holy, holy. This emphasis, when it's three times. I will overturn, overturn, Overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come, whose right it is, and I will give it him, and if you want me to tell you who that one is, well, I'm sorry for it, for you know it, don't you? You know there's only one whose right it is. I will overturn, overturn, overturn. Do you understand why things are in such a muddle and a mix and a confusion now? The overturning is still going on. God will never have a paradise in this world. He'll never have a millennium brought about by nations meeting together and agreeing not to blow one another to pieces or whatnot. Never. It'll be overturned, overturned, overturned till he come. Till he come. New Testament words in Old Testament. And I will give it to him. He gave it temporarily to Nebuchadnezzar. temporarily, And his successors. What are they made of it? What have we made of it? What have the Gentiles done? We can't throw any stones at Israel and say, oh, they were a bad lot. All we have to say is we're, a whole lot of us are a bad lot. We are not able to rule and to reign apart from the grace of God. Everything depends now upon his beloved son. And as he said before, his accusers, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and there shall be given him a dominion, and nations, languages shall serve him, for he is king of kings and lord of lords. Oh yes, it's all going to end up like that eventually. Well now, please forgive me if I seem to have taken you all round the books of the Bible instead of focusing upon Daniel. I've done it on purpose because it's beginning to put it in its place on the map. I'll try to behave myself next time and come to closer grips with the book of Daniel but I won't promise never to go to Jeremiah Ezekiel the minor prophets or Matthew or the book of the Revelation or Isaiah or Genesis when we're dealing with such books as Daniel and the Revelation because not because i have a little sad about it but because the Bible is one it may be subdivided like the body with many members but they're all in perfect harmony and you'll never find discord when you compare one scripture with another For the same author, the author of the one passage, is the author of all. Let's be glad that we have a certainty when we open the book that we can say, Say the Lord.